You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hi, I am Charlie. I am in Earn. I am Firefighter. I am the chef of my small business. I am here to tell you about the movie in it. He has helped people the person more in it. Well, tell how's to be fit is getting the good thing lies. Buddy, yeah, is in. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for that wonderful introduction and welcome, everybody. If you're in this room here today, then therapy plays some sort of role in your life. And as with anything that you put your time and energies to, we always want to ensure that we're getting the best possible outcomes. So whether you're a person with a disability, a therapist, a family member, or whether you're supporting a person with disability in some other way, I hope that today provides you with some ideas about the role that therapy plays in a good life. So what has brought you here today? For many families that I've worked with and speak to, it can be that therapy appointments fill up their calendars and they struggle to fit in all the appointments, let alone all of the therapy activities that are assigned by each therapist. So when this is the case, the person can be missing out on the opportunities that their same-aged peers are experiencing. If they're in therapy rather than at the playground, if they're in therapy rather than playing with friends after school, if they're in therapy rather than playing soccer or going to dance class, then they may be missing out on the many opportunities that these typical activities provide. So for both families and therapists, it can seem that all the work being put into the therapy sessions isn't making any real difference to the person's day. And this can be frustrating and and concerning. So we also commonly hear that individuals don't want to go to therapy sessions or that they don't willingly participate once they're there. Families and therapists can struggle to motivate and engage people in their therapy program. So what can we do to address these challenges? So what I hope to share with you today is one of the elements of best practice in therapy that when done well align with the good life. If you're a therapist, you'll likely be familiar with some of these concepts but may find it difficult to implement them in your practice. If you aren't a therapist, some of these elements may or may not be new to you, and I hope that by talking about them today and sharing some examples from real life, you'll understand why this approach may be taken by the therapist you're involved with. Best practice therapy will promote the best outcomes and will also align with the good life. It will be goal-focused, person and family-centred, embedded in authentic ways, consider inclusion as a priority and will be done in a collaborative manner by those around the person including the person themselves. So if we say we need therapy to be goal-focused, then we need to be clear about what that goal is because one thing is very clear. Therapy is not the goal. 
Therapy is a means to an end. It's a tool that can be utilised to support an individual live a good life. The good life is the goal. And since you're attending this conference today, I'm going to assume that that's your goal too. Holding a clear vision of the good life is an important step to keep a person focused on where they are headed in life. And we've heard from families today about how their visions have guided them. So having a written vision statement can help a person to make decisions when there are many choices. And we would expect that the person's vision would contain the same things that all of us would include when we describe the good things in our lives. So it could include things like education, employment, a place to call home, connections and relationships, and we've heard a lot about that from Hugh just then, with people that share your interests and value your attributes and strengths, a sense of belonging, being known and missed when you're not there. So our goals all come from that vision, the vision held by the person. And when planning and delivering therapy, we should always come back to the vision statement and make sure what is being put in place aligns with that vision. So here's an example of a vision statement. And if we have a look at this for Jack, it includes to contribute and participate through valued social roles, to have positive relationships, to follow an ordinary rhythm of life, to find a sense of belonging, and to be valued and known in his local community. So you might have noticed that nowhere in Jack's vision does it talk about therapy because therapy is not a goal for Jack's life, but therapy may be a support that ensures this vision is a reality. What it does talk about is participating and contributing through valued social roles. So when thinking about how best to utilise therapy, think about what role this will provide both as an outcome of the therapy and throughout the therapy process. Will it strengthen an existing valued role or will it offer a new valued role? Or perhaps maybe it's only promoting a devalued role such as that of client. So we want to be goal and role focused because we know that promoting positive roles is especially important for people who hold a devalued role such as being a person with a disability. So very early on life, and you have seen Jack throughout this conference, very early in life Jack made it clear that he wasn't interested in therapy conducted in the traditional way. And the traditional approach that I'm talking about is the one that doesn't follow the best practice principles that we'll be talking about today. So the approach that Jack was experiencing involved him being taken out of class or away from activities that he was doing, away from his friends, and being directed to conduct activities that weren't authentic and meaningful to Jack. So Jack communicated his displeasure through his demeanour at therapy times and his unwillingness to participate in therapy sessions. So this prompted Jack's parents to revisit their vision for Jack's life. And when they considered therapy alongside this vision, they realised that these things did not align. Therapy was not contributing to positive relationships or a sense of belonging. Rather, it was hampering these things. It was not following the ordinary rhythm of his life, quite the opposite. So honouring Jack and his vision, they revised their therapy approach. And this didn't mean that they no longer used therapy to support Jack, but rather they ensured they utilised therapy in a manner consistent with Jack's vision. So when it came to Jack's goal of becoming a business owner when he was in high school, thought was given to how therapy might support this. One of the things they did was to engage the assistance of an occupational therapist, an OT, to do a task analysis of all the steps that would be involved in that. So task analysis, we've had a little bit of about in some other sessions today, but it's critical to the work that an OT does. So OT is a great resource for, for getting a task analysis done. And I think the session we had earlier today, getting a good start with Jack and Milton and his 
Jack's job coach and his mum getting a good start and a good job, they talked about really breaking down that task analysis. Because the task analysis, when applied, can contribute to the success of the individual mastering that skill. And it can be applied so widely, work, school, home, all the aspects of skills that we'd like to look at achieving and accomplishing. This is what the AT came up with. And this is just an excerpt from that document. The document continued on to cover other elements such as sourcing suitable lawnmower equipment and advertising, financials and the running of the business. So we can see uh, just the first few steps here. And notice that you can see they also identified who should be involved in actioning each of these tasks in a column to the right. And this is another critical component when identifying the role that the therapist will have. In order to promote Jack's skills and participation, not all elements were completed with the therapist. And in some instances, there was a more appropriate natural support, such as, you know, Jack and his bunch of mates coming up with the name and the logo for the business, or his family assisting when a client wanted to call and cancel or reschedule. So the goal was for Jack to be as independent as possible when mowing. It was identified that one of the elements Jack found difficult was following a pattern to ensure that the whole lawn was covered effectively. So advice was again sought, once again from an OT, about how to best support Jack with learning the pattern of mowing. But once again, Jack didn't like having the OT present at all. So what they ended up doing was he would work with his cousin, Sol, who was also his business partner, and he would imitate the pattern that Sol creating and that proved to be the best method for Jack to learn that task. So working working collaboratively with all the people involved, you can see as a critical element and we will delve into that a little bit more shortly. So being person-centered means appreciating the person as a unique individual with unique interests, strengths, attributes and goals and we've heard a lot about this today. They're having the person at the center of everything we do in our planning and delivery and activities is really crucial. And it means taking into account all the aspects of their life, including their family and their other supports. The individual's involvement in all aspects of therapy should be encouraged and honoured as much as possible. Hopefully it's already clear from what we've already spoken about that the therapy goal should come from that individual and those closest to them. It should never be set by the therapist alone. So when therapy is family-centred, It focuses on building the capacity of those closest to the person to support them well. And this is a particular focus of a lot of the work in the early years, but of course it it can continue much longer than that. To demonstrate the importance of being family-centred, I'm going to show you a video that was created by Early Childhood Intervention Australia. They're now called Reimagine. And in this video, you'll hear the perspective of some family members on their experiences with family-centred therapy. You'll find the link to the video that Anne's referring to in the show notes. So even though that video focuses on the early childhood years, the principles are the same for all ages. And you hear in those stories the value placed on the roles the individuals are focused on. So those include roles such as brother, preschooler, playground goer, rock climber. They're all roles that the individual is either looking to affirm or obtain. For the best possible outcomes, therapy needs to be authentic. To do this, therapy needs to be embedded in the daily routines of the individual. When this is done, it means that the individual will have many natural opportunities to practice the skill they're working on. 
The key message here is that for the best outcomes, we need to ensure that therapy isn't only happening in a one-hour weekly therapy session. It should be happening regularly and authentically in the daily life of the individual. This will provide many more opportunities for practice without the need for meaningless repetition. So let's take the example of someone learning to, to do their buttons. Can you imagine being asked to repeatedly do up buttons and how annoying to watch someone undo them so that you can do it all over again? Instead, this could be practiced each morning when getting dressed and perhaps also in the evening buttoning up pyjamas. And we could strategically plan for this practice in the clothing that we select while the skill is being mastered. So to be authentic, therapy should be conducted in natural environments. So when you plan and deliver therapy in this manner, you don't need to translate the therapy sessions into the real world because it's already happening in the real world. So for example, if the goal is for the person to be able to communicate with their peers, then the communication activities need to be embedded into the classroom and not taught in isolation during therapy sessions. Authentic therapy will focus on natural support. So this includes both people and equipment. The people who typically carry out these activities with the person should be part of the therapy activities wherever possible. Wherever possible, items and equipment already present in those environments should be used. So if the therapy goal is, say, for the individual to learn to feed themselves with a spoon, then the therapy activities should take place with the support of the person who is typically present to assist with meals. And they should also use the chair that they would normally sit at the table they would normally use, and their own plate and bowl, spoon, whatever the equipment they would typically use is. Of course, there may be the need for specialised equipment to be introduced in some instances, but where possible, if it's not specialised equipment, then the items that are natural to that person and from that environment should be used. So when all of those three things are considered in the planning and the delivery of therapy, then the individual will have lots of natural opportunities to work towards the goal within the natural rhythms of their day. It also means that they don't need to have a time dedicated to therapy homework. In the early years and even beyond, therapy should take almost a play-based approach as this is what is natural to children. Children learn through play. So as we heard in that video, if it doesn't feel like play and it doesn't feel like you can easily incorporate it into your day, then it's probably not going to continue for very long. Okay, so you can see this goal here for Geetha. Geetha's goal. Given manipulatives, for example, object, paper, pencil, scissors, Geetha will follow a one-step direction with 80% accuracy in 8 out of 10 opportunities. It's very much in therapy jargon, and maybe you've seen goals like this, maybe not. But essentially, the goal is to get it to be able to follow a simple instruction. So how will this be addressed? So as I said, this comes from a real story. And what this actually looked like was the therapist asking Geetha to switch the light on and off 10 times within a one-hour therapy session in Geetha's home. So if we look at the elements that we just talked about, only some of those are incorporated here. So we are in a natural environment. We're in Geetha's home. We are using equipment found in that environment. But what's been missed is the natural routine and the natural support of the people or person who would typically make this request of Geetha. So if we think about what role that's promoting, the strongest role that jumps out at me is that role of client, which is one we would be actively trying to avoid. Now, we might not be surprised 
to hear that Geetha was not at all interested in participating in these sessions. But perhaps by embedding this instruction within daily routines of the family, Geetha might have been better able to demonstrate her ability to follow this instruction. She may have also had more than 10 opportunities across the space of the week to switch a light on or off. So this is another role of Geetha's, and it was about her developing her flexible thinking skills. So following previous therapy experiences, the family now sought out creative ways of incorporating therapy in authentic ways into their lives. This time the therapist worked with them to come up with a number of ways that flexible thinking could be built into daily household tasks and activities that mother and daughter could do together. One example activity was hanging out the washi. So Geetha's mum would hand Geetha an item and Geetha would then be responsible for hanging this item on the clothesline. So this required her to think and to make a decision about how many pegs would she need and how best would this item need to be arranged on the line for pegging. So the goal wasn't about perfecting the task. Rather, it was about finding the skills that Geetha had and building on them. When parents and teachers, when parents are teachers, we sometimes need to change the way we do things to ensure that we're setting our children up for success. So this is where the therapist can support the parents by breaking down those tasks into those teachable elements in that task analysis manner. So Geetha's mum teaches the task by modelling it, let Geetha practice the task, and then her mum can step in when she needs assistance. So this example incorporates all the elements of an authentic therapy activity. And it is taking place in a daily routine in a natural environment, utilising natural support and equipment. And Geetha's mum tells me, that Geetha willingly took part in these activities. And some of the outcomes included the bonding of that relationship between Geetha and her mum. And the activities, of course, they were getting a lot done. They were achieving things during these therapy activities. And the skills that Geetha learnt during this time have stayed with her and Geetha is able to help her mum out by doing these tasks and she's well prepared for one day when she has her own home. So great outcomes all around. So another thing to watch out for, To be authentic, it's always important that therapy is age appropriate. And sometimes we find that when someone's learning a new skill, the teaching mechanisms may not be relevant to their age. This can happen when someone's learning a skill that is typically taught at a younger age. So, for example, singing songs or reciting a rhyme for remembering the process of tying shoelaces, even when you're learning the skill at 16 rather than 5 or 6. We want to watch out for this because it can off the unwanted label of someone as an eternal child because it's not typical for a 16-year-old to be doing this. And it can have implications for not only the way they're viewed by others but also the way that they view themselves. So I'll share this real example. The real-life story is about Greg. So Greg is a 21-year-old man who undertakes a regular speech therapy session. One of his goals is to obtain a better understanding of emotions in order to be able to talk about his own emotion and also recognise emotions in others. And this is part of a bigger goal that Greg has around social interactions. It's about having adult conversations with family, friends and colleagues and the people that he meets in his life. So it was discovered that to build Greg's understanding about emotions, minion characters were being used. So for anyone who isn't familiar, that big yellow creature, that's a minion, and it's a character in a series of children's movies. So it's probably pretty obvious that, um, that that's not very age-appropriate for a 21-year-old. So when it's used this way, what role is being reinforced? 
by using a minion with a 21-year-old. The prominent role, again, is that eternal child role. And it doesn't match with any of the roles that Greg's actually seeking to reinforce or obtain. A more authentic and age-appropriate approach would be to use photos of real people, as shown on the right there. So this would reinforce Greg valued roles as brother, son, friend, colleague, and hopefully support his ability to fill the role of romantic partner, a role that he is actually really looking forward to taking up when he meets the right person. Okay, so this slide is about the importance of always thinking about inclusion as a priority when we plan our therapy. It's been made very clear in the research around inclusive education that when a child is withdrawn from their class, they're not seen by their peers as being a belonging member of that class. So what we need to be thinking about is how will therapy done in this way impact the way this person is seen and the way they see themselves. So the way that we need to think about it is to try and be promoting that inclusion when we think about how we're going to plan and deliver the therapy. We want to promote that ability to participate and belong within whatever community that person is seeking to be part of or is already part of and really looking for the extension in that belonging. So this young girl was looking at developing her shared attention and the therapist had started thinking about sitting and doing puzzles together. But rather than do it in the therapy session, together with the family, they decided, no, let's make this an activity that she can do with friends and family members and really promote that participation and belonging within the communities that she was already part of and really seeking to continue to build relationships. So I think this whole theme of collaboration has been one we've heard a lot about through the conference and it's, of course, a very critical element of good therapy. So while the therapists can bring their expertise in their field, parents bring their expert knowledge of who their child is, what is important to them, what their day looks like, what their interests, strengths, inherent motivators are. So a therapist who, who jumps in without taking the time to gather information or if the family perhaps is keen to jump straight into the therapy actions rather than spend some time at this stage, it means that you might not always be able to set that therapy up well right from the start. So we need to individualise the therapy approach and the way we need to do that is by gathering all of this information. So there needs to be the sharing of information in both directions. So this collaboration between the therapist and the individual, along with those closest to them, should continue throughout the therapy work, so not just at that setup stage, to ensure that we're building on the capacity of the individual and their closest supporters to continue to improve the level of independence that person can experience in their day-to-day life. Because therapy is never the goal, but in fact only a means to an end, therapy that's done well we'll be always working towards the goal of redundancy. So that's redundancy of the therapist Uh, and potentially those around them as we build the skills of the individual to, to do those things for themselves. So one of the most alarming things that I sometimes hear from families is that they don't know what a particular therapist is working on. And hopefully you can see why this is a red flag because none of the elements that we've been talking about today are possible if those people closest to the person don't know what the goal is. So collaboration also extends to the various therapists that work around the person. So there sometimes might be a lot of therapists involved in one person's life, but your team may be small or large depending on the needs of the individual and the family. And on top of this group of therapists, 
You might also be having to deal with GPs, pediatricians, dietitians, neurologists, and so on. Uh, when there are lots of different therapies taking place, it's important that they're all done in a collaborative way so that we can be working towards the best possible outcome. Um, this is about a young girl named Lisa. When I met Lisa, she was 12 years old. Lisa has minimal motor control and no system of communication. So she verbalises with some sounds, but no one in her life understands her meaning and it had not been determined whether or not Lisa understood what others were communicating to her. Lisa had a diagnosis of cortical vision impairment, which some of you may know, but it's um, not very well understood widely, and that's where I came in. My role was to assess Lisa's functional vision. And in working with her family and getting an understanding of all the elements of Lisa's daily life and all the other therapies, I became aware that there were efforts being made by a speech therapist to develop a system of communication involving switching and PECs, a picture exchange communication system. So the work the speech therapist had been doing was based on her expert knowledge, but she had little understanding of CVI. But when we collaborated, we were able to make a number of changes that led to better outcomes. So for example, Lisa, we realised, was able to see some colours better than others. She relied heavily on light and movement to draw her visual attention and her vision was better on her left, left visual field. So we took the images that the speech therapist was using and we adjusted them for some of those elements. So you can see a different format of the PECs, which took into account all of these elements of that, it, that improved Lisa's ability to actually see these symbols. And this made an immediate difference. We presented these in her preferred field. And we added them to an iPad, which provided a light source, which drew her attention. But neither the speech therapist nor I would have come up with this on our own. So it required the input of not just us as individual therapists, but also talking and working with the family. So together with working with the family, we were able to learn more about Lisa's existing capacity to communicate and look at ways that this could be developed in her daily life. As we've already discussed, the collaboration must always extend to the family and sometimes beyond. So in this instance, as a school-aged student, it was critical that we also include Lisa's classroom teacher into that collaborative circle because she needed to know how to do this in Lisa's school day because it needed to be embedded across Lisa's life in all of the different places that she was going to be taking part and with all of the people in those environments who needed to be able to communicate with Lisa. Okay. So to review, so essentially you'll know if you're on the right track when your therapy supports the vision rather than supplanting it. So don't put your vision aside to focus on therapy and don't ignore the significance of things like inclusion when focusing solely on therapy. Therapy is one of the mechanisms by which a good life can be supported. When a therapist starts by trying to get to know the person as an individual, their interests, strengths, personality traits, what their day looks like and how they sit within the family unit, then that's a really good thing. It's not a waste of time to spend a number of sessions where this is the purpose and it will set things up best right from the start to work towards the best possible outcomes. And if you have to put time aside to do homework, therapy activities, then you might want to talk to your therapist about how activities can be embedded into daily routines and activities. It might take some creative thinking and it will require input from all parties. Parents need to provide their expert knowledge about the family member and therapists can contribute their expert knowledge and experience 
and together hopefully you can find a solution that will, will, will meet all of these needs. And it might take some trial and error. But when you do things this way, the sessions with the therapist can then focus on tweaking and looking at what's worked well, what hasn't worked so well, and what adjustments and extensions could we make to these daily routine activities. And collaboration is key. If all the elements are going to be applied successfully, it also is the mechanism by which the therapist is able to step away from the picture. Therapist redundancy should always be the goal. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.